This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Vancouver Consumer. Back after a brief summer break with a good show lined up today in our second hour, John Carlson returns with a fresh look at Metro Vancouver real estate. And in just a few moments, family lawyers Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Unink return to take your calls. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Well, talk about a consumer fad. It went viral in just hours and is currently the number one app in the app store. But while it may appear to be All in good fun, serious privacy and security concerns are being raised over FaceApp. Now, the app itself uses AI to digitally age a person's face, giving them a potential glimpse of what they may look like as an elderly person. Cute, right? It's been all over Facebook, and it's a huge hit. So, what's the big deal? Well, privacy and the terms you agree to when you accept the app. It's been developed by a Russian company, and its extremely long terms and conditions include you giving this company permission to use your image as they see fit permanently, including making money from your image and owing you nothing for it. In response to these concerns, FaceApp issued a statement saying, among other things, that even though the core R&D team is located in Russia, the user data is not transferred to Russia and, quote, we don't sell or share any user data with any third parties, close quote. As for user images, FaceApp said that all pictures from the gallery are uploaded to our servers after a user grants access to the photos. We don't do that. We only upload a photo selected for editing. You can quickly check this with any omnipotent network sniffing tools available on the internet. So there you have it. A fun, silly app that could keep your images for a lifetime and do nothing, or a huge new gold mine of personal information just waiting to be hacked. As they say on sports TV... You make the call. A palatial hotel in India which has suites fit for maharajas at about 8,500 Canadian a night has been rated the best hotel in the world. Readers of Travel and Leisure gave the Leela Palace Idapur 98.89 out of 100 in their annual World's Best 100 Hotels Award, which earned it the top spot. Very close behind in second place, the Lodge and Spa at Brush Creek Ranch in Wyoming. For wildlife fanatics, third prize winner Singita Sabi Sand in South Africa might appeal. It has three rustic-styled luxury lodges set within a sprawling, privately owned game reserve. In fact, four of the top ten resorts are in Africa. And while the world is vaguely represented on this top 100 hotel list, the only Canadian entry is the Fogo Island Inn in Newfoundland. And that's number 51. There's a recall of ground bison meat underway across Canada. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency says the products are from St. Leonard, Quebec, and are marketed under the brand names Natural Frontier Foods, Sensations, and North Fork Canadian Bison Ranch. The products have been recalled due to possible E. coli contamination. The CFIA says if you have these products in your home, they should not be consumed. Either throw them out 
or return them to the place you bought them. There have been no reports of illness here in Canada, but some have been reported in the States, and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency is verifying products are being recalled here. The advice to those who may have consumed the product is check with your doctor if you experience any unusual symptoms. Well, compared to the well-organized celebrations of the moon landing 50 years ago, another big marker from the same year is having a much tougher time achieving liftoff. The team behind Woodstock 50 still hasn't nailed down a venue for the 50th anniversary celebrations of that three-day event at Maxie Asger's farm 50 years ago in upstate New York. Well, first of all, they tried to obtain Watkins Glen, which is a fabulous race car site in upstate New York. Today, one to put the festival there. Denied. So they tried a racetrack called Oneida Downs, a horse racetrack near Utica, and after three attempts, also denied. This uh, denial business caused a bit of a fracture in the group, the Woodstock 50. A team started to break up. So what's the status today? Not much to report, except to say the organizers are still trying to put a package together, but there are no tickets on sale. And no notice of cancellation either. Now, here's here's the kicker. 70 musical acts have been booked, and all of them have been paid fully in advance. Go figure. Officially, the Woodstock 50 celebration is scheduled to go August 16 to 18. The organizers some of, are some of the people who put on the original Woodstock 50 years ago, and they're a determined, if not slightly confused group. We'll keep you posted. There are those 70 bands. I hope they haven't cashed their checks because uh, they've been paid. Mind you, if I was in one of those bands, I would have cashed their check the day I got it. Those are some of the week's top consumer stories. We'll look at a few more as we go along, but coming right up, we have our friends from the Zuckerman Law Group in studio to take your calls on all family law matters. That's coming right up. This is Vancouver Consumer, and you've got it on CKNW. Welcome back to the program this beautiful Saturday afternoon on the west coast of Canada. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by the guys from the Zuckerman Law Group, including the founder. Stuart Zuckerman is back with us. Hello, Stuart. Great to see you again. Great to see you, Sterling. I'm pleased to be here. Senior lawyer Ron Hunink is also back for another round of radio. Ron, good to see you, too. Sterling, good to be here. Well, guys, uh, we're going to do we're gonna do a couple of different things here. We're going to take phone calls. Let's open up the phone lines right now. We have two family law lawyers in the house and uh, legal advice is about to be dispensed, and you love the price when we do it on the radio. 604-280-9898. Again, grab a line if you'd like. 604-280-9898. And we'll get you through to the lawyers in just a couple of seconds. Is there such a thing in the family law business to both of you as a slow time of year? Summer seems to be slow for many sectors of the economy. Is it the same in the family law business, Stuart? Well, most summers we do see a bit of a lull, uh, uh, although because a lot of lawyers take their vacations during the summer, you do get people who have called a few different firms and can't find a lawyer as well. So there's there's usually work available, um, but it's not as busy a time as the fall and the spring typically. Okay. is there is what, What's the peak of the year if there is such a thing, Ron? Is, uh, we've talked before about January and people who hold it together barely through the holidays and then that's it. So January is a bit of a spike. Is that the, the big one of the year? Oh, absolutely. Oh, really? There's a couple of spikes. So, you know, the first spike, of course, is right after Labor Day. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting. I, you know, all I can uh, suspect is that uh, during the summertime, there's just too much going on. Kids at home, uh, for those who have kids. Uh, and 
for the January spike, it's, well, nobody's going to start a divorce right before Christmas. Mm. I, that's, that's my theory. Oh, interesting stuff. Stuart, I want to ask you a technical question, and it's based on your television commercial. You have this line that you use at the end of the ad that cracks me up every time I use it. You say, call us before your spouse does. Yep. And I laugh every time still. But there is an element of technical reality to that that talk to us about this whole confidentiality thing and if if you don't call before your spouse does, you're out of luck. Yeah, well, How does that work? The, the issue is to do with conflict of interest. So the, the first, if there are two spouses, we have nine lawyers at our firm. Right. If a spouse calls the firm, any, any particular spouse calls the firm uh, for uh, legal advice, they get booked into our system uh, to come get advice from a lawyer. They don't Get advice over the phone, mm-hmm. um, and but when when they call, their name is put into our conflict system. And if their spouse calls an hour later or the next day and says, "I want to meet with one of your lawyers," they wouldn't be able to do it because we've already um, committed to giving advice to the first spouse. So we can't give advice, you know, even if it's two separate lawyers in our firm, they can't give advice to two spouses on the opposite side of the same case. So the the person who calls first, if they proceed with their appointment and get legal advice from us, then uh, we have a confidentiality with them solicitor-client privilege has been created, right. and we're not allowed to give advice to the other spouse. Interesting stuff. So the uh, second spouse, Ron, would be required then to seek out another firm. How long has this been the, the law, or has it always been the case? It's always been the case, but you know, over the years, uh, lawyers have gotten more organized uh, about uh, uh, sussing out conflicts before people even come in. It used to happen that um, if you weren't so organized as as we forced ourselves to be, you'd have uh, someone in, and then you'd realize after a few minutes, uh, someone in the firm has already spoken to. Right. Yeah. So you're spinning your wheels after that We're, point. And then we'd have to say, I'm sorry, but I just realized uh, that we've already met with your wife, even mm-hmm. though she has a completely different name to yours, and yours was misspelled by, by someone uh, booking you in or whatever. And then we can't act for either. Oh, really? Really. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So the, the clerical team has to be right up to sc- snuff on all of their information gathering as well. That's right. We did open the phone lines. Let's get right to it. Rose in Surrey, welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, indeed. Um, I have a question. Um, I'm contemplating um, divorce. Um, I just don't know what is financially beneficial for me here. Um, I'm earning 100000 My spouse is working part-time, has no intention of working full-time, and earning only 40000 Okay. And I'm just not sure. Do I, will I have to pay spousal support in case I decide to get divorced, or is it more beneficial for me to just kind of stick with him and kind of live together but have separate lives? Or uh, Can I ask how long you've been uh, cohabiting? Uh, 10 years. Okay, so there's kind of a rough rule of thumb under the spousal support guidelines of about, you take the number of years of cohabitation, you multiply it by roughly 2%, so 10 years times 2% gives you 20%, and then you multiply that 20% by the difference in your annual income. So if you're earning 100000 and your husband is earning 40000 the difference in your income is 60000 right. You take 60000 multiply it by 20%, and you, the answer is 12000 If you take that figure and divide it by 12 months, that's your typical monthly support obligation. So you would be faced, uh, the caller Rose would be faced with paying $1,000 a month to her 
her uh, lower income earning spouse as spousal support or alimony. And the duration of that support would typically be anywhere from half of the length of the marriage, so five years in this case, to as much as double the length of the marriage or more if there were children involved and that other person was responsible for care of the children. So, so Rose, you're looking at uh, paying five to 10 years of spousal support at a rate of about $1,000 a month. Um, uh, and there are variations in that upwards or downwards. Um, and, and the, but generally speaking, that's the approach that the court would take. And in terms of the question of whether to kind of just hang in there and live separate live lives, separate lives, the yeah. problem is the longer your relationship continues, that higher that percentage becomes because you're, now there's more years. Being, if you wait till 15 years uh, together, now you're going to pay you more per month. 30% yeah. instead of 20% because sure. 15 times 2 is 30. So, um, you know, the longer you're in that relationship, the more the financial uh, intermingling or the financial dependence continues, and that's what increases the obligation to pay support. Does that help at all, Rose? Unfortunately, but yes, I understand it. Rose, don't, don't give up. Just no, hang yet. on, Ron, Ron has a word or two for you here as well, Rose. So hang in just a second. Go ahead, Ron, please. Those spousal support advisory guidelines that Stuart was talking about, those are to help determine how long spousal support should be and uh, some idea of how much it should be every month if the person uh, gets through the threshold of showing they deserve it or they require it. I couldn't help but hear you, well, the tone of voice and the words you used, it sounds like you think your husband isn't working up to his full potential. Is that true? That's completely correct. Uh, he's just super lazy. He doesn't doesn't think he should work more hours, and he just he works four hours per day, and the rest, he just sits next to the television doing absolutely nothing. Mm. Well, if he worked full-time, what could he earn? Um, maybe 80 Okay, so that you you can see how from the example Stuart gave uh, that that changes the numbers dramatically. So what we would do in your case is we would try to have the court say, well, impute income to your husband. In other words, say this man can earn this much if he chooses to only work this much. He ought to get the spousal support, if any, that goes with a person who's actually earning eighty thousand dollars a year. That's what we would do. It's it's called imputation of income, and arguably he might not even have uh, a shot at spousal support because entitlement is the first thing you got to show you're entitled and then you apply the spousal support advisory guidelines which obviously give you some idea of what you're in for so uh, the, and in that situation which the, the law is also refers to as intentional unemployment so the law says right. that the okay. the person who alleges that the other person is intentionally un, unemployed has the onus in the first instance to give evidence to the court to establish their belief that the person is intentionally un, unemployed right. and then once they've crossed that barrier then the other spouse has to prove why he's not intentionally un, un, unemployed or intentionally underemployed so the that the, the the onus would first be on the caller to give her evidence as to the fact that he's choosing to work part-time, and then right. he would have to give his explanation as to why Defend he, that position. Why he can't work full-time. Interesting stuff. Now, there's a glimmer of hope for you, Rose. That's for sure. I'll start collecting some evidence here and there. Oh, good. That's, that's, a, that's a very good thing to do. And uh, do you have access to the internet, Rose? Yes, I do. Okay, then I would recommend highly that you check out ZuckermanLaw.ca. Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N. ZuckermanLaw.ca. That's where Ron and Stuart that you're speaking with right now, that's their firm. Uh, they have offices all over the Lower Mainland, including Surrey and uh, Yaletown. So uh, they'll be uh, very happy to hear from you. 
I'll definitely will book an appointment. All right. Thank you very much. You're, well, you're quite welcome. Do we have time for another one here before the, the show? Yes, we do. So let's check in with Peter next in, here in town. Peter, hello. Hi, how are you? All right, thanks. What's up? Well, my son is going to university, first year university this coming year, and uh, I've been paying child support for him. Um, and now he's going away, and I uh, just wanted to know, do I continue paying child support if he's going away to university and living off campus and stuff and away from his uh, mother? Or what do I do? And my second question is... First of all, let me just ask, is he, is he going away to somewhere here in Canada or is he leaving the country? Uh, no, he's going somewhere here in Canada. He's uh, going into the interior. Okay. And, there. and what was your second question? My second question is he's also planning on doing co-op which means uh, that uh, after the first year university, he can take time off to do work in whatever field he wants. It could be anywhere from six months to a year, maybe more, before I'm going back to university. In other words, he's making an income. Do I also pay child support during that time? All right. Um, Stuart, you want to take the, sure, the lead on this one? They're great questions. They are. Um, and it's a, it's a common problem uh, deal, dealing with the issue of uh, adult child support. Children become adults in the, in the province of British Columbia at the age of 19. Okay. And the, the, the starting presumption is that child support continues up to the age of 19. That's the, the, the end date for support unless the child, by reason of illness, disability, or other cause, is unable to remove themselves from dependence upon a parent. Okay. And so uh, that term, other cause, has been interpreted by the Supreme Court and our Court of Appeal to include full-time attendance at college or university. Um, so while a child is going to college or university full-time, they typically are entitled to spousal support. But there are a number of factors that the court considers and weighs when deciding whether or not to award spousal support for children over the age of 19. So there's a famous case been cited over a thousand times across Canada called Farden and Farden, F-A-R-D-E-N. You can look it up on the internet. It's a B.C. Supreme Court decision. And subsequent to that, Darlington and Darlington, a B.C. Court of Appeal decision that set out all those factors. And they include the extent to which the child can contribute to his own uh, needs through uh, work uh, and as well as loans, bursaries and scholarships. So the court wants to hear the evidence about what the child has done to obtain that financial support and it also includes uh, the what uh, income the child earns it includes what grades the child uh, is earning whether he's in a um, a course of studies that is going to lead to self-sufficiency so you can't just take basket weaving 101 and right, right, study right. Beatles music uh, exactly. at, at college level and get supported by your parents it has to be a program of uh, uh, education that's going to lead to self-sufficiency and included in one of the factors is the extent to which uh, if the child has unilaterally terminated a relationship with a parent um, for no cause of the parent's side. That can be a basis to terminate uh, the child support obligation. And in terms of uh, when, once he's away in school, uh, the period that he does this co-op and stops going to school, if he's earning an income that's sufficient to meet his housing and grocery needs, then he may not be entitled to support during that period. Uh, but for the period that he's attending school full-time, typically child support would continue. And it can. It, it's not just the table amount under the child support guidelines. It could be above or below that, depending on the cost of tuition, the cost of books, the cost of housing. All those things can be factored in. And in some cases, a parent can arrange through a, through a court order or agreement to pay that support directly to the child instead of to the other spouse. And in, also in some of those cases, the support's only during the school year. You may have during the summer months uh, either no support or a lesser amount of support than the full table amount is possible. 
Welcome back to the program on the beautiful Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by the Zuckerman Law Guys. Founder Stuart Zuckerman is here, senior lawyer Ron Hunick, also back with us to take your calls and talk about family law matters. The lines are wide open, 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Want to talk, and I know, Stuart, you've got a television campaign coming up uh, before Labor Day, uh, dealing with some of the myths surrounding uh, family family law. Some things that people think is the case with family law that it turns out aren't. Now, we we have, and Ron and I were talking about this during the break earlier, uh, traditionally or historically, Canadian courts, and this goes back a couple of decades now, but Canadian courts were seen to be in uh, giving preferential treatment to the nurturing parent, the mom in most cases, the law has changed in that regard. Was it ever the case? And what's the, what's the story now? So there was a doctrine called the Tender Years Doctrine uh, in family law, which uh, developed in the late 50s, early 60s. And the idea was that uh, the principle was if you had a child under the age of five, so that would be a called the child of tender years, right. that if the parents separated, that the mother should be presumed to be the primary caregiver of that child. Right. In 1972, there was a case called Young and Young, and it went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada made it absolutely clear that that presumption was incorrect, and that in family law, there should be no presumptions, that each case should look at the interests, the best interests of the particular child in that case. And they said it, it could just as well be that the father is the better parent to meet the best interests of the child. There's no presumption that a mother is better uh, than a father with respect to custody of the child. What what still happens to this, so, so the courts do not, people have a myth belief that the courts favor women over men for child custody. And you see it all the time. I mean, you're, you're family lawyers, so you get this uh, mistaken impression frequently, don't you? It, it, we do, and the, the but the myth arises from the fact that in the majority of cases, the majority of households, it, the, the father is working full-time from Monday to Friday, and the mother may be a homemaker, and she's the one who's caring for the preschool-aged children, and courts do tend to preserve the status quo. So what was going on before the separation will, to some extent, be continued after the separation. They're sure. not going to rip the child from the mother and put him into the dad's hands. And when, when dad works five days a week and has to hire a preschool to put the kid into if mom's available to care for the kid. So sure. they look at the status quo and say, mom was already providing this day-to-day care, and that'll continue. But we had, now we have to arrange a schedule to give dad time in the evenings and on the weekends um, uh, in order to share the child between uh, and give the child the benefit of both parents. Ron, uh, just before we go back to uh, the phone lines, and Kathy and North Vancouver, please stand by. You're next. Uh, The Family Law Act of British Columbia was changed recently or in recent years. Uh, It was the big change further to this point about courts seem to be favoring one parent or one case over another. Uh, Does the new Family Law Act in British Columbia specify that the interests of the child are paramount above all other considerations? Well, it actually goes a little further. It says it's the only, inter- pardon me, it's it's the only consideration, okay. best interest of the child. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, and that's effective since when? 2013? March of 2013. Right. Yeah, yeah. which is uh, a pretty young piece of law for uh, <laughs> the glacial pace that law moves at. And okay. it also, that act eliminated the term custody, so custody is not part of the lexicon. Either. It is still in the Divorce Act, but that act is also, there's a second reading of revisions to the Divorce Act uh, before Parliament, and that act is also going to remove the word custody and deal with guardianship and parental rights rather than, than that term custody, because it's a bit of a loaded phrase. Well, and, and I guess alimony is gone forever, and it was an American phrase to begin with, right? Well, it's puzzle support in Canada, yeah. Uh, okay. To the phones, Kathy in North Vancouver, thank you for waiting. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon. Um, I obviously hired the wrong lawyer. My ex-husband signed a waiver on my pension, and my uh, lawyer gave him half my pension, even though he had signed a waiver. My question is, if I asked my ex-husband, out of the goodness of his heart, if he would give me back that half of my pension, is that an option or not? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Normally, once the pension division has taken place with the pension administrators, the, the pension administrators are bound to cut two checks, one to the member and one to the, the other party who's become a limited member as a result of a separation agreement or a, or a court order. So it, it may not be binding on the uh, pension administrators if your husband agreed to that. I mean, he could agree to um, to pay you this, the, the same amount that he receives from your pension as spousal support, so it becomes your income and tax deductible to him. Uh, that's a possibility. It may be possible for you to go back to court um, if you can pro- uh, truly prove that that the agreement and the intention was not to divide the pension and somehow it got divided, that, that you could claim support from your husband in an amount equal to the amount that he's getting out of your pension. That may be a solution. Or the third possible solution is if truly your lawyer made an error in dividing the pension after the agreement said that it wasn't to be divided, you may be able to sue your lawyer in negligence for the, the, law, the economic loss that you suffered uh, from that, uh, that mistake. Kathy, oh, did you already, I, I, uh, did you already uh, write to the pension administrator? No, I haven't written to them, but I was actually told by another lawyer that I should sue my lawyer, and I'm wondering if there is obviously a statute of limitations now to do that, because she also put in under the, after I had signed the original separation agreement, she put in, because he's a contractor, she put in that I couldn't report him to Revenue Canada, and that I couldn't go after him for the damages of the construction he did in my house. And she did that after the original separation agreement was signed in the final divorce papers. But I was emotionally unfit um, because of loss of my child and everything that was going on, obviously, in the mental problems of having a divorce. Right. And um, I was told by another lawyer that I should sue her. But I'm wondering now if there is a statute of limitations to that. Well, I would think it's two years from the time that you learned of the problem. Are you within those two uh, years? No, I'm not within those two years, and that would be the biggest problem, if mm. anything. If anything, I thought about writing to the Law Society, because, um, I mean, what was done was just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. So, but, but as it um, turns out, you, you do have some, both both lawyers have, have indicated, Kathy, that you do have some recourse. You can petition yes. the courts for uh, a reconsideration yes. of the arrangement, right, Stuart? Uh, well, it, it's questionable whether she can go back and have the agreement varied when it's been more than two years since that agreement was signed. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and and were you divorced at, at the same time that that agreement was executed? Um, were we divorced? No, we did a separation agreement, and um, but you never got I divorced. Was, oh, we did get divorced. Okay. Yeah, no, has the divorce it, has been put through. Has it been more than two years since the divorce? Yes, it has been. So there is a time limit of two years from the date of divorce to try to vary an agreement. So the only thing that would be possibly left would be the potential for you to claim spousal support from your uh, from your spouse if you can truly truly prove the. Uh, the, the agreement said that there was a waiver and release of support and somehow by error he was awarded, uh, uh, sorry, a, a, a waiver and release of your pension and by error he was awarded a piece of your pension. That might be a basis to seek spousal support. 
Kathy, I think you uh, should right. probably should probably uh, make an appointment to see one of uh, either Stewart or Ron or one of their colleagues at Zuckerman Law. It sounds more than a little complicated, and both lawyers are nodding vigorously. Uh, ZuckermanLaw.ca, by the way, is the uh, website Z U K E R M A N Zuckerman Law, one word. dot ca. Uh, they're located uh, well. The, the headquarters is out there on One Fifty Second Street in Surrey, and you can give them a call at six zero four five seven five fifty four sixty four. All that information, Kathy, is available at ZuckermanLaw.ca. We're back in Vancouver for our next call. Serge, good afternoon. Oh, hey, yeah, I just got a quick question here. Go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, me and my ex, um, we never went to court over our kid or anything. We just kind of have shared custody as an agreement between ourselves. And uh, we can't seem to reach, like, uh, like a scheduling thing, so she wants to go to court. And... Um, um, my my inclination is that she works four days on and four days off, so I'm thinking that like on her four days off, I would uh, on her four days that she's at work, she would be with me, right? Mm-hmm. But she seems to think that she can apply for full custody, and um, when she's not with um, when she's at work and she can't take care of the child, she should go with her grandparents. And my my thought is, why would she go with her grandparents when her father's here and available? So uh, Ron here, let me let me ask. Uh, what since the separation? What uh, has been the time that you've been with your daughter? It's a daughter, right? Yeah, my daughter. Yeah, she um, she usually comes here on Wednesday or Thursday and stays till Sunday night. Sunday All right. Maybe. Yeah. And your work schedule? What's that? Uh, my work schedule it's pretty much open. Uh, I'm on call, so if I pick up the phone, I can go to work, and they call me every day. Wow. Well, you know what? It seems to me, Serge, you have some pretty strong facts in terms of uh, your availability kind of to to adjust your schedule uh, any way you want. Um, And if you go to court uh, and you present the right evidence, I I think you have a good shot at having uh, the the four days, uh, barring any bad parenting on your part, of course, uh, that you have a good shot of having the four days that she's off. Is she a nurse or a police officer? Yeah, yeah, she's a a nurse. She works about 12-hour shifts four days a week. Got it. Yeah, she she seems to be under the impression that if she wants, she can just uh, send her to her mom's house, like her grandma or whatever. She can just go there and they they would just give her to the grandparents over me. Right. Well, you know, some people get a little possessive about their children, and that sounds yeah. uh, sounds like what may be happening here, including yeah. grandparents get a little possessive. Yeah. Um, but um, with respect to her work, does does she know long in advance when her four days on and off is going to be? Or does does it does it shift? Yeah, yeah. She has a year. Her schedule gets to her at the beginning of the year, and it's for the whole year. Wow. So she right. Knows exactly. She knows exactly when she will be and won't be at work. And before you split up, uh, um, you you had your daughter and you both parented her before you split up. Yes. And you're not married. No. Okay. You 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 are joint guardians by virtue of the okay. fact that you uh, that that you both lived together at the time that your daughter was born, and so that kind of gives you a leg up over the argument that that your ex is uh, is trying to impose on you. Yeah. Um, all I would say is, uh, well. Serge, as, as much as our Family Law Act was intended yeah. to allow people to do things themselves, uh, I get a lot of my work from people who tried to do it themselves and did it wrong, uh, yeah. and then it's a lot harder to undo. So whether it's us or somebody else, naturally we prefer it's us, but whether it's us or somebody else, do get a lawyer to assist you with this. In fact, okay. in, in 90% of the cases, uh, we resolve uh, things without having to go to a trial. And uh, Serge, this is Stuart here. I would just also add that there is case law out there that does say that that 
parents should be preferred over third-party caregivers. So when the other, when the father is available and the mother says, I want to put the kid in daycare or I want to put the kid with, with my parents, right. um, yeah. the court's going to favor a parent uh, yourself over, yeah. over a grandparent uh, having that care if you're available yeah, to provide it. Yeah, and that's exactly what, what my thought was. And uh, yeah, that was my question. I just I thought, like, why would they send her to her grandparents? And I'm here. Well, you know, you should probably sit down with Ron or Stuart yeah. or one of their colleagues yeah. because it's uh, do it yourself is uh, is just not it's not the route to take when you're talking, especially about children. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. That that puts a lot of ease on my mind. Then. Well, good. Thanks for calling, Serge. And don't forget to just check it out when you have a moment. Uh, go to ZuckermanLaw.ca. There's all sorts of opportunities to send him an email, give him a phone call, uh, and set up an appointment. And that initial appointment, I should probably reiterate because we haven't said so during the entire broadcast, Stuart. That initial interview in which uh, they interview you as much as you interview them. Yeah. It's that's that's there's no charge for that. That's a free thirty minute consultation um, and uh, oftentimes if the if the meeting goes over 30 minutes if the person doesn't hire us doesn't retain us we won't charge them even for the time over the first 30 minutes if they do retain us the time spent after the first 30 minutes is billed at the hourly rate of the lawyer meeting with the person but otherwise the first 30 minutes is at no charge okay and typically in 30 minutes we can assess the problem and give our opinion as to uh, how the law will treat that problem absolutely because that's all you do is family law that's 30 right. minutes of, uh, of explanation of one set of circumstances run to a professional like you is plenty in terms of being able to identify the problem and give that basic set of here's where you stand advice. You're absolutely right, uh, Sterling. And, and <clears throat> the, the other aspect of it, of course, is that there has to be a, a decent fit between the lawyer and the client. Yes, and, that's why I said you know, it's a not, two-way interview. Yeah, not everybody, uh, not everybody gets along with everybody else. Uh, and People can pick up on that in their 30 minutes. Uh, one more quick myth to bust or not. Uh, you have to wait a year to start a divorce if you're going to proceed with that uh, course of action after splitting up. Ron? That's an unfortunate uh, myth that uh, has resulted in a lot of tears for a lot of people. And the reason is uh, the tears come from uh, continuing with... Uh, a terrible set of facts, a terrible treatment from your spouse, waiting for a year, thinking that you can't do anything about it until a year has passed. No, you can, uh, whether you're married or whether you're not married uh, but have been in a spousal relationship. You can start uh, your proceeding tomorrow. Why would you want to start a proceeding? Well, because there's a lot of things that need to be put in place now so that you're not suffering through a, a year of tears. For example, rules or court orders regarding care of the children, rules or court orders regarding spousal support, child support, who gets to live in the mm -hmm, house, mm -hmm. who gets to uh, to drive the nice car, and who's stuck with the, uh, the, the old awful beater. one. Yeah, the old beater. All of these things can be done now, and you know what? They should be done now, because otherwise we have a year of history that we have to deal with in the divorce when they come in. And that adds expense. Right. And, and so, to say nothing of 12 months of, of misery, the, you don't need to go through. The, the, myth, the myth arises from the fact that you can't get your divorce order until you can say under oath that you have been separated for a year. Okay. But you can be separate under the same roof for a year and get your divorce order. And, and that doesn't stop you from starting your divorce on the day you decide you want to separate. You don't have to wait a year to start your divorce proceeding. You just have to wait a year to get the actual order saying you're divorced. And that year can be while you're still living under the same roof. All right. Now, we're going to be watching. 
watching global television in the weeks ahead as Stuart and friends uh, will be busting even more myths with the capable assistance of Ray Ferraro, yes, who's an old friend and a good guy. Thanks, both of you. Ron, great to see you again. I hope you enjoy the second half of your summer as much as you appear to have had uh, it's good, a good first half. And Stuart, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for coming in. A pleasure to be here and just a reminder to call us before your spouse does. Absolutely. And all the information you need is, uh, I love that line, ZuckermanLaw.ca, Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, ZuckermanLaw, one word, dot C-A. Gentlemen, thank you. We're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman and Ron Hunink for a very informative visit. And thanks for your calls, too. Great hour. Coming up after the news, Johnny 1%. John Carlson returns with a fresh look at Metro Vancouver real estate. Time now for Dooley Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, looks at Airbnb for boats. Thanks, Sterling. After launching in San Francisco in 2013, Get My Boat expanded to Canadian cities last year and is hoping more water sport enthusiasts will join the sharing economy. It started as a short-term boat rental platform but now includes many different on-the-water activities, canoes, sailboats, kayaks, even whale-watching tours, and party yachts equipped with a licensed captain. It works in a similar way to Airbnb or Uber. People who own boats can rent them out when they're not using them, and people looking for a boat can rent one that fits their requirements. Here's Valerie Strife, Get My Boats, Head of Marketing. What we're trying to do is like streamline the process just to make everything easier, where instead of having to sign up for a membership or buy a boat or... You know, sometimes you go to the marina and they're like, oh, this is the one pontoon that we have available. You know, this is giving people options. It lets them see what's around me. What can I book? Can I comparison shop on the price? Get My Boat can be accessed by app or on its website. Users search the area they're looking to visit and then sort boats and experiences by type, price, and guest count. Then they can select the dates and pay for the rental. In Canada, Get My Boat has seen the most activity right here in Vancouver, Toronto, and parts of Alberta. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. More from the Edmonton Police Service this weekend. Last time we heard from them was Put Your Skunk in the Trunk campaign against carrying open pot in your car, which will get you into trouble. Well, this weekend, the Edmonton cops are trying to make trouble for a fraudster who's selling fake Oilers sweaters supposedly autographed by Connor McDavid. This guy's 23, pretends to be a member of the Oilers organization has so far offered two autographed McDavid jerseys rather, online and sold them to unsuspecting collectors. Now, the first one sold for 1400 bucks. The second one for $23,000. And that one even included a bogus certificate of authenticity. This guy is good, but not good enough. He's been caught and he's facing charges. His name is Chandra Singh. He will appear in court in September. The concern is there may be other victims. And Edmonton police ask if you've been taken by this guy or know someone who has, 
I supposedly autographed Connor McDavid jersey for super dollars, called the Edmonton cops. Much chatter about a high-speed rail link connecting Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland this week as BC joined the approval parade, at least to the point where we're going to spend another 300 grand on a new project office to keep the dream alive. The problem is not the service, it's the cost, ranging from 22 to $42 billion. U.S. It's not going to happen for several years, if ever, but critics say those dollars could be much better allocated to other B.C. transportation priorities, especially given B.C.ers would be the lowest participants in the rail project. Still, for Cascadia fans, this is the way of the world. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.